1: Well, one of my all-time favorite stories from history is about a small group of prisoners of war held at a camp during World War II. Now, I actually think I've told this story before at Grace, but let's be honest, I'm probably going to tell it again, you know, every few weeks because it is an amazing story. It's just crazy enough to be unbelievable and yet still totally true. So Felice Benuzzi, is an Italian fighting in Ethiopia during World War II. Ethiopia is a colony of Italy at the time, and um, he's captured, he and some others are captured by British soldiers stationed in Kenya, which was a British colony at the time. They're taken to a POW camp just at the base of Mount Kenya, which is the second tallest mountain in Africa behind Kilimanjaro. Now, I've actually climbed both of them, and I can tell you, even though Kilimanjaro is about 1,000 feet higher, Mount Kenya is far more intimidating, but also far more beautiful. The last thousand feet is a, is a vertical rock face. Anyway, Benuzzi and his buddies, when they lived back in Italy, were elite mountaineers who grew up climbing in the Alps and the Pyrenees in Europe. And the worst torture for them was not actually being confined to a POW camp, but having to stare up at one of the most beautiful mountains in the world and not being able to climb it. So, they devised a plan. They knew that if they escaped from camp, they would likely never make it out of the country. I mean, three white guys with Italian accents walking around the middle of Africa in the 1940s wasn't going to work. They weren't going to make it far, but they could escape to climb a mountain, and so that's what they did. They spent months secretly fashioning climbing equipment out of scrap metal and rope that they found laying around the camp. They, they hoarded supplies and food. And then one night, they just walked out of camp. It's a wild story. They talk about three danger zones they encountered on their way up the mountain. The first danger zone was the human zone, where they could get recaptured quickly. The second one was this band of jungle that they had to walk through, about 20 miles long, where something much larger than them would possibly eat them. And then the last danger zone was the one they were actually the most comfortable with, was the alpine zone. where. You know, the worst that could happen is they would either fall or freeze to death. That, at least, they were used to. And they did it. They summited a 17,000-foot mountain with gear that they had made by hand in a POW camp. And the map that they were working off of was an illustrated label from a tin can of a package of meat that they had found. Then a few weeks later, they walked right back to the main gate of the POW camp, with their hands up and they said, sorry for leaving, we're back now, we just had to go climb a mountain. Now that's a crazy story, all right? It's unbelievable really, but it's totally true. And so we should believe it. You can read the account in Benuzi's book, No Picnic on Mount Kenya. It's historically verifiable, it's gripping, it's captivating. So this is where all this is going. What makes that story different from the story of Jesus' resurrection. Now that might seem like a random question, but think about it for a minute. Both are gripping tales of escape from confinement. Both push the human limits beyond imagination. Both are captivating and most importantly, both are true. Both actually happened. Historically, verifiable facts, eyewitness testimonies. Both are good history. So. Why can we hear the Benuzi story and just move on with our lives? And even though it's amazing, we can forget about it for months and years at a time, but we're not really allowed to do that. We can't do that with the resurrection of Jesus. See, what's different about the resurrection historical event from every other historical event, no matter how amazing, no matter how compelling or unbelievable and true? What requires us to receive the resurrection event differently than all others in history? We're in a sermon series right now through the season of Easter, exploring exactly this question. It's a series that we're calling Resurrection Encounters. And what we've seen so far in John 20 and 21 is as people begin to encounter Jesus, after his death and resurrection, when they encounter this brand new thing that's never existed before—resurrection life—basically, two things always happen. First, they have to become convinced of the reality of this new fact. So Peter and John have to run down the facts at the empty tomb. They have to see the um, the linen cloths wrapped up and folded up and sitting there. Mary has to hear her name in a familiar voice from Jesus before she can see him for who he truly is. Thomas has to literally touch the scars on Jesus' crucified yet resurrected body. They have to become convinced of the totally unique historical event that just happened. And so do we. I mean, is this something that you have become convinced of yet? Have you run down the facts and, and let the historical reality of this central moment in history really settle into your mental map of the world. Because if not, that's really step one. But the second thing that we are seeing as we observe these resurrection encounters, and this is where things are different from any other historical event, is everyone who truly encounters him, who meets the resurrected Jesus, is changed forever. This encounter transforms lives. So Mary Magdalene encountered the resurrected Jesus and was transformed from weeping to witness. The disciples were moved from fear to mission. Thomas, when he met Jesus, his doubts were transformed into deep and lasting belief. It's not just that Jesus showed up and added something new to their lives, like some you know spiritual new reality, like getting a shiny new car or something. No, Jesus goes right to the very heart of their deepest hurt, and their brokenness, and their sin, and he turns it into one of their greatest strengths. So a woman defined by her sorrow becomes a woman defined by her joyful declaration, I've seen the Lord. And a group of men defined by their fear become a group of men known for their bold proclamation of the gospel to every nation on earth. It's like vibrant color, has re-entered their grayscale world, the resurrection power of Jesus gets inside of them on like a spiritually molecular level, and they become new people. The resurrection, it's not just a great story, it's the great story that makes sense of your story. It's not just historical fact, but the fact that brings meaning and hope to our lives. It's not that nothing else in the Bible or Christianity matters, but Everything else in the Bible and Christianity only matters if this actually happened, if this is true. And so today, as we turn the page and look at the next resurrection encounter that we just heard read from John 21 by a kid who actually looks like he needs a haircut, we come to Peter. But before looking at this particular moment in Peter's life, I think it's helpful to get a feel for Peter's whole life. Now, um, Peter was one of the 12 disciples that Jesus chose to follow him everywhere he went during his public ministry, but more than that, Peter became one of Jesus' closest followers. He was on the the inner ring, so to speak, and he gets access to the most intimate and private moments of Jesus' life. He's one of the few that are there at the Transfiguration. He's one of the few that are there during Jesus' desperate prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his death. Of all the disciples, we actually probably get to know Peter the best in the four gospel accounts. And he's quite the character. I mean, he's loud, he's brash, he's confident whether that confidence was deserved or not. And honestly, it very rarely was. He's almost always the first to volunteer for something. And therefore, he's almost always the first to fail at something. Peter's the one who stepped out on the water to walk with Jesus and actually walked on water for a second, before he promptly started to sink in that water, when he took his eyes off Jesus. He's the first to go, and he's the first to fail. I actually like Peter a lot. I respect him. So if it sounds like I'm giving him a hard time, it's like a younger brother laughing at his older brother, who he loves, but also teases. Peter's the first one among the disciples to identify Jesus as the Messiah. He calls him the Christ, the King, that they'd all been waiting for their whole lives. But in that very same scene, Peter's also the one who mixed up the meaning of Jesus's mission so badly that Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Okay, so Peter's sort of a go big or go home kind of guy. Big enough, a big enough faith to literally walk on water, but also is called Satan by Jesus. Guess you win some and you lose some. Peter was the first to declare that he would follow Jesus to his death, if necessary, as they ate their final Passover meal together on Thursday night of Holy Week. And then he was the one who verbally denied knowing Jesus three different times as Jesus stood trial for his life later on Friday. Let me read that scene for you from John 18, since it plays a a key part in the resurrection encounter we're about to look at. In John 18, we read this, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. A couple of verses later, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself by the fire, and, and they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I'm not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed three opportunities to make good on his bold claim that given the chance, he would die with Jesus and three devastating folds. He denies the presence of Jesus's love and salvation and kindness and grace in his life. And that's the last we hear of Peter until the resurrection happens. Jesus is tried and killed and buried on Friday, What do you think Peter's Saturday was like? I mean, put yourself in his shoes. You just had the worst day of your life, and it's all your fault. There's no one else that you can blame for this. You failed horribly. You crumpled when you needed to be strong. You abandoned the best friend that you've ever had. You couldn't live up to your word, and now you're filled with guilt which means you made a huge mistake. But even more than guilt, you're actually filled with shame, which means you believe you are a huge mistake. If you're Peter, your Saturday is filled with this guilt and this shame and this grief over your past sins. You, you might believe they will define you forever. I mean, Jesus is dead after all, right? And with him, any hope of something different. You believe. You'll be defined by your failure. This is how you'll be known. It's the deepest and the final word about you. Have any of you ever experienced a Saturday like Peter's? Not that his exact sins are your exact sins necessarily, but have you ever looked back on your behavior, your thoughts, your words, and felt utterly broken by them? They they might be public and embarrassing, or they might be private and shameful, but it, it might it might be one single off, awful thing that happened, like Peter, or it might be a whole series of actions and patterns and habits in your life, things you feel are still you're still enslaved by today. Have you ever felt that your past will always define you in this way? Not just that you made a mistake, but maybe even that You are a mistake. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's a porn habit. Maybe it's a parenting failure. Maybe it's what you said to someone that just devastated them, or a pattern of anger that keeps breaking good things in your life. Maybe it's a past financial indiscretion or business practice that would not be good for your reputation if it came out if your past haunts you at all, and honestly, whose doesn't a little bit, please hear this. Because Jesus rose from the dead, your past failures, your present failures, and even your future failures do not have to be the final word about you. There's a new word waiting for you in a resurrection encounter with Jesus, but you have to encounter that resurrection power and be healed by it. Peter has seen Jesus already, but it takes this unique, targeted encounter from Jesus in the place of his deepest failure and hurt and shame to radically transform Peter's life. Jesus cooks up a meal of fish on the beach for his disciples, as one does after they are raised from the dead. And right after breakfast, he pulls Peter aside And Jesus responds to Peter's three denials, his three devastating sins, with three questions for Peter in return. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, those are actually the very first words Jesus ever spoke to Peter when he met him at the beginning of the gospel. Do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said a second time, Simon, son of John, "'Do you love me?' And he said to him, "'Yes, Lord, you you know that I love you.' And he said to him, "'Tend my sheep.' And he said to him the third time, "'Simon, son of John, do you love me?' And Peter was grieved because he'd said it to him a third time. Dawns on him what Jesus is doing. "'Do you love me?' And he said to him, "'Lord, you know everything. You know I love you.' Jesus said to him, "'Feed my sheep.'" Notice a few beautiful things that are going on in this exchange. First, Jesus asked Peter if he loves him more than the rest of the disciples, not to set up a sort of hierarchy of love or devotion among them, but I think as a a kind of gentle rebuke to Peter's claims that he would outperform all the other disciples when it came to following Jesus anywhere. Now, of course, Peter failed to live up to those bold claims um, when he denied and abandoned Jesus, just like the rest of them. so maybe the message here is stop comparing your faith to everyone else's and just concentrate on the relationship between you and me, Peter. We, we all have different stories of sin and faith. Each of us has a different pathway to a relationship with Jesus. There are similarities among all of God's family, of course, but many differences too. So maybe Jesus is subtly asking us to worry less about how our walk with him stacks up to others, and to just enjoy walking with him. Don't worry about him. You follow me, he says to Peter. And, and next, notice in Peter's answers that as he reasserts his love for Jesus, um, he does this, but in a much more humble and a much more self differential way than his personality would have lent itself to in his previous life. So it's almost like he's learning not to trust the instincts of his own heart anymore, but to trust the knowledge and the word of Jesus more than his own intuitions. So he repeats this three times. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. As if he's saying, you know everything about me. You know my deepest failure. You know my darkest sin." you know what lurks in my heart, my rebellion, my shame, but you also know that there really is love in there. You know that there's trust in there. I do believe, help my unbelief. Now, I could try to assert my love for you by expressing these strong feelings I have, by showing more devotion and more discipline, by conjuring up more expressions and declarations and doing it more loudly, but I've done all that before, And whatever emotional energy I produce in proving my love to you doesn't matter so much, does it? I mean, moments later, I still sink in the water. Moments later, I still deny you. I don't trust myself that much anymore. But that's okay, because I trust you, Jesus, more than ever right now. And you know what's in my heart. You know I really do love you. And your opinion of me is infinitely more important than my expression of what I hope is true in my heart. Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Nothing left to prove and everything left to receive from you as a gift. And this is exactly when Peter became so effective in God's kingdom, isn't it? When he started losing trust in himself and gaining trust in Jesus. When with a humble and quiet heart, He simply accepted the grace of Jesus in the moment. Now, of course, Peter realized what was happening the instant the third question came out of Jesus' mouth. We read Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And again, Jesus has gone to the very heart of guilt and hurt and sin, not to crush Peter, not to shame him or to belittle him. Peter can do all that well enough on his own and we can too. Now Jesus goes to our most tender places, not to hurt us, but to heal us and to love us and to restore us into his presence. And this is why those who think they're useless to God because of their past, because of what haunts us, are actually the most poised to be used by God if we would just let him forgive us. Uh, One of my favorite commentators on John, a guy named Bruner, put it like this. We learn that appreciated failure, in theology it's called grace and the forgiveness of sins, is once again the only human or subjective prerequisite for Jesus' very gracious gift of shepherding his people. What he's saying is the qualifications to not just follow Jesus, but to actually lead in his kingdom, to be used by him, it's not perfection, but it's failure plus repentance. It's, it's our sin plus this desperate, hopeful faith in Jesus's power to fix anything that we've broken. So good news for those of us who have failed in life, possibly in big ways, possibly in embarrassing or, or guilty ways. You're halfway qualified. Not only to be loved and accepted and forgiven and doted on by the king of the universe, but to be sent by him into the world to nourish and care for his people, his family, his flock. Your failure is half the qualification. If you receive the forgiveness, that's the rest of it. Which then he sends you right back into the world, which brings us to the last thing I want to point out the restoration that Jesus brings sinners like us when he brings us into an encounter with his resurrection power, it's not just forgiveness and personal health, but the mission of extending that health and healing and grace to more and more hungry and broken fellow travelers in this world. It's the call to bear the cost of following Jesus so we can extend the love of Jesus to the world. He says to Peter, when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. Follow me. There are parts of this calling that will cost us things that we cherish. But Jesus is not asking us to follow him where he's not already gone before us, preparing the way, charting the course. And as we go, the mission is always this, feed my lambs and tend my sheep. Shepherd the family. Does, he, does Jesus start by talking about lambs because Jesus has a special disposition towards kids and little ones in his kingdom? Maybe, I like to think so. But either way, this call to shepherd those in our care is the mission of every Christian, not just professional Christians, right? Not just pastors, but all those who care for others. It's the mission of parents with their children. It's the mission of parent, or children with their parents teachers with students, pastors with congregations, bosses with employees, neighbors with neighbors. Feed my sheep, nourish one another on the riches of the gospel of grace and hope and love. To wrap up, have you done things, said things, thought things that would not only be embarrassing or humiliating if other people at church found out, but would actually keep you from being able to come here again? Uh, Peter had a lock on that, okay? He totally humiliated himself in front of other disciples and abandoned the best friend he ever had in Jesus. But these were not disqualifiers in God's church, but in a weird way, were actually the qualifiers for his life with Jesus from that point on. Failure plus repentance is all you need on your resume with Jesus. He literally takes care of the rest. Have you messed up in your life? You're on the right track. You're gonna fit in well around here, okay? At Grace Church, we worship the God of a thousand chances. There's nothing you have done or can do that disqualifies you from the love and acceptance of Jesus. Whatever word about yourself you think defines you, Jesus is a better word, a more eternal word, a sin-forgiving, death-defeating, healing, restoring word of love and mission and hope. It is his resurrection life that's offered to you for free in love. This is the guy you need to meet, okay? He loves you enough to die for you, and then the gifts of his gospel really start pouring in you need a resurrection encounter with the living Jesus, and he is available to meet with anytime. Open his word, pray to him, call out to him in faith, and he will meet you. He will restore you, he will heal you, and then he will send you into the world in his name on his mission. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these great encounters that you have with your followers after your death and resurrection. Thank you for the powerful presence that you have in this world, even now. Even though we can't physically touch you and hear you and see you just yet, we have access to you in all the most important ways. Help us meet you, change us, go into our past and heal us at our most tender and vulnerable points, God, and turn those into the strengths in which you send us out into the world in your name. We trust that you're at work. We trust that your power is at work in the world. Help us receive you. Help us love you and nourish us with your gospel again today. We ask these things in your name. Amen.